study with Xavier University's Institute for Spirituality and Social Justice. Graduate theology degrees and certificates available with online options. Tuition discounts for teachers, volunteers, and those in social or pastoral ministry. For more information, go to xavier.edu slash ISSJ. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Uh, happy Easter, Ashley. Happy Easter. We can go back to that often over drinks now. I know. Very <laughs> exciting. Um, I'm always reminded of this this first episode back from Easter when in 2020, when we were recording from home and everybody was working from home, I I bursted out into song with a big Jesus Christ is risen today on the podcast, and my and my roommate was on a work call and had to explain to his coworkers that there was a crazy person outside <laughs> celebrating uh, the resurrection. Times. So um, you won't be doing that again? Or? No, I don't think so. I'm, you know, I I was gonna maybe bring up and just like a random complaint that I have is that we need more Easter jams. Mm. There's only a select, you know, there is a select small number, and we. Don't yeah. hear very often, but Jesus Christ is risen today is my favorite one. And it's not the only thing that's risen today. Yeah, we are having, well, not quite champagne. What is it, Zach? We, we have uh, Cremant de Loire, but it is our custom that we have some type of sparkling alcohol because the rising bubbles remind us that Christ is risen. All is that, right. That's what I told our bosses. <laughs> so, cheers. Cheers. You're really aggressive with the cheers. Are you just trying to make the sound like hit the microphone? Because one of these days you're going to shatter these Yeah, no, sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. All right. Um, anyway, uh, we got a great show coming up today. Yes. Uh, if you're listening on Friday, it's Earth Day. So we have a, a climate and environment themed episode that we're really excited about. We talked with two uh, actual young people. We're, we're kind of aging out we of that. But, but we talked with two students, uh, Emily Burke and Henry Glynn, who were both selected in February to take part in a Zoom webinar with the one and only Pope Francis. Not just like a webinar. I feel like it, it was a Zoom meeting. Yeah. Webinars were like only one person talks. But so Pope Francis was listening to both Emily and Henry and talking back with them. And so you know, it, was, it was great to see and watch. You know, he was taking notes while they were giving their presentations and mm-hmm. then asking really thoughtful questions about that. So we just wanted to talk to them about, you know, A, what was it like to be able to talk to the Pope about climate change? And also, you know, what are some of the struggles, particularly in the American church, to kind of gather energy around this issue? It's clearly something that's super important to Pope Francis, climate change, but it still feels like a stagnant issue on the ground here. And the and Look, these two are way smarter than us in talking about this, so we'll, we'll leave it at that for now, but you're going to want to stick around for that conversation. Yes, and we also have in Signs of the Times a conversation about the state of the German synodal path and some uh, public disagreements among bishops about that. And in As One Friend Speaks to Another, we're going to talk about Easter because it's not over yet. No, and maybe a little <laughs> post-Lent Holy Week hangover that you yeah. might be feeling uh, <laughs> as Easter starts, so... Yes. But before we get to all of that, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. So lately, I have been all about binge learning. You know, I, I really want to try to learn as much stuff as possible, I, like how to do taxes. That was important this past week. Uh, you know, how do I how do I say um, where's my hotel in Italian? That's going to be important later on. What are the events that led up to the Cuban Missile Crisis? Sometimes, you know, you're just like lying awake late at night and you fall down a Wikipedia rabbit hole and you wish you had something more than Wikipedia to give you the history lesson. And my favorite go-to place for stuff like this is Wontrium, which has unlimited access to a huge collection of high-quality ad-free videos on virtually any topic you can think of, all presented by top experts. And one of the best things about the OneDream app is that it lets you listen or watch all of these great offerings in a way that's convenient for you. I, I personally enjoy listening to them as if they are podcasts on my commute into the city every morning. Yeah, I'm a big like, um, as I'm trying to fall asleep, listening to podcast person. Mm-hmm. I've been switching to OneDream lately to try and, you know, be productive maybe a little <laughs> bit while I'm falling asleep, which is good and bad because sometimes I'll, like, I'll get really into a topic and then all of a sudden just like, oh, I, I haven't actually gone to sleep. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just up learning. And I wanted to talk about one course that has been particularly interesting that I've been getting into more, and it's called Thinking About Religion and Violence. And this is from the Great Courses Collection on Wondrium. 
Yeah, I was really glad that you uh, suggested this one to me. This is something I studied in college, uh, but mostly in the context of uh, Christianity and Islam and the relationship there. But this course is really comprehensive. It kind of starts at starts at the beginning, like you know, what is the basis for religious violence in the text, and how has that played out over the centuries? And up to this current day, like I, I know it can be scandalous for me to look at two purportedly Christian countries who believe in Jesus Christ, King of Peace, at war with each other. So this course from the Grace Courses really gives you an in-depth look into those roots. Yeah. And we know that you'll love Wondrium and these collections from the Great Courses just as much as we do. So what are you waiting for? Sign up now through our special URL to start your free trial when you sign up for the discounted annual plan. And this is a great deal. And you to get that, you need to go to our special URL, which is wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Remember, W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our story this week, Zach? So we have not really done a huge deep dive into uh, the German synodal path, um, certainly not as deep of a dive as our colleague Colleen Dully did last year for Inside the Vatican, which is great and provided a lot of useful context for us as we were preparing for this week's episode. But recently, there's been some very public disagreement among bishops from all around the world about what's going on in Germany. So we thought we would just kind of get together and recap that and explore some of the issues. Yes. So first to distinguish, this is different from the worldwide synodal path on synodality that Pope Francis has convened. Yes. Uh, this started back in 2019, and it's it's just among the German bishops. And kind or of the German church. Or sorry, the German church. And um, yeah, so it's a meeting of uh, 230 German Catholics, including all of the bishops, um, heads of religious orders, lay movements, representatives from dioceses and parishes, and experts in various fields. And this was called kind of in response to the sexual abuse crisis, which really broke out in Germany in in 2010 and has led to a massive exodus of uh, German Catholics from the church. Yeah. And the bishops in 2018 commissioned their own report to look at the roots of the sexual abuse crisis in Germany. And what they found is, you know, I think this is familiar to people here, but that at, at, at the root, it was, you know, the power structures of the church and, and a culture of secrecy around sexuality that led to the abuse crisis and and the cover up. Among, among church leaders. Yeah. So now there's a lot of things that are up for discussion as part of this process. Things things like power, sexual morality, priestly ministry, um, including some tab, you know, what what's considered taboo to talk about in the church, conversations around celibacy, women in the church, same-sex sexuality. And so that's, I don't know, causing a lot of, uh, rankling a lot of feathers, I'll mm-hmm. say. Yeah. And, and one thing that makes this Synod in Germany unique is is the involvement of lay people not only as you know you know giving their input but they actually have voting power in the synod which means whatever whatever resolutions come out of this will have will have the vote of lay people but that means they're also not exactly binding on the church we are we're still not a democracy and so anything that comes out of this the synod that you know touches on universal church teaching or canon law is is you know, going to be recommendations that they then send to Pope Francis. So I want to sort of transition into why we should care about this. You know, why wh- why does this affect Catholics in the United States, young people listening to this podcast right now, something that's happening in Germany? I, I think one, there's like a natural interest in this topic because they're, you know, bringing up things that we don't typically talk about in church. Like we said earlier, they're like third rails, you know, celibacy, um, same-sex unions, women's ordination. And but thanks to the internet, we're we're all able to you know listen in and, re- and read about what's happening, which was not the case for you know most of church history. The German church is not speaking in one voice. There's uh, open disagreement among the bishops there and among uh, lay people in Germany, and there are disagreements among bishops' conferences. Um, so I do you know there have been statements by bishops in Poland, by the Scandinavian bishops, and then just last week, 74 bishops from North America, Africa, Italy, and Australia, though most of them from America, I think 49 of them, uh, issued this open letter to the to the bishops of Germany uh, expressing their concerns about the uh, synodal path. Uh, potential for schism, which big scary word. Yes, and I mean we should say it sounds like this is less than one percent of the world's bishops, but it is still not no bishops. I mean, seventy-four is a decent number. They were really worried that, as you said, there was a potential for schism because they're relying on quote sociological analysis and contemporary political, including gender ideologies, 
more so than on things like scripture and tradition. So bishops around the world are paying attention to this, maybe worried about it. And Pope Francis is also looking at this. He's also been a little critical of the process, but for different reasons that were then were brought up in this letter from the 74 bishops. Yeah. From the get-go, Pope Francis, um, first in a letter in 2019 and then throughout the process, has really tried to encourage the church in Germany to let the Holy Spirit guide this process, um, to not, you know, reduce the church to, you know, like warring political factions or a, you know, just like a secular association of people where things are decided by vote. That's that's not how the church works. So he's he's um, emphasized again and again that, you know, they need to be focused on the voice of the Holy Spirit, on the Eucharist, on prayer and all of their discussions. Yeah. And he also, I mean, warned and hinted at there's a temptation for the German church, and this is true also of the American church, because they have so many resources, they have such like high prestige, you know, from they've got both lots of money, but also lots of like theological heft from the time of the Reformation, like all the way through to today. Um, There's a sense of self-importance that they can probably fix some of the issues going on in the church on their own. Um, And Francis really wants to warn warn them against this, right? Like, you know, we've got to all move, walk together as a church, not just as like a a national church. Yeah, no, he's, he's reminded them to do this like in the context of the universal church and with an eye to the unity of all Catholics throughout the world. And it's just simply not the case that the say you know what the church in germany thinks are the most important issues of the time are going to be the same things that the church in africa and latin america and asia or even the united states are are focused on yeah so a couple of things we want to bring up and discuss i think for you me because as far as i can tell from you know my viewpoint there's not a, there's not a danger of schism i think when sometimes people hear people talking about either things about church teaching they don't like or a whiff of people wanting church teaching to change. It's just assumed that they are trying to damage the church. And if and if they don't succeed, they're going to leave or or they will just leave. And, you know, from the reporting that, uh, you know, our colleague, colleagues have done, the, this has all been done in conjunction with, with the Vatican. You know, they're keeping Pope Francis informed and they're just trying to have a conversation. What's your sense? Why, are, why do you think that... Uh, there are these like groups of bishops and other Catholics that are that are so worried about what's happening in Germany. Yeah, I think I am a little bit more sympathetic to their concerns. I am just kind of a genu- generally cautious, conservative, non-confrontational kind of person. So my my gut response to people kind of like running out too far ahead or rocking the boat too much is kind of like the okay, slow down. Um, getting seasick. Yeah, <laughs> um, but. You know, I I I know that about myself, and so I try to you know temper that by like thinking it through and you know listening to Pope Francis. And Pope Francis has called for frank, open, messy discussions. Um, and you know, it's one thing to accept that in 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 theory, and it's another thing to see it happening in the opening in the open and being like, whoa, I I don't like these bishops <laughs> seemingly to contradict each other. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's just weird to see me. Maybe for some people, weird to see bishops disagree publicly with one another. But I also don't think that this is necessarily something new. And the bishops that signed this letter said so, and in, in, they referred to the history of bishops, you know, writing letters to one another in times of like great theological discussion. And so it's not necessarily something to be afraid of. I think the thing I get uncomfortable with is when there's this idea uh, when it ra- just like the temperature gets raised to such a point of like if you are talking about things like women's ordination or priestly celibacy or sexual morality that it's just like automatically assumed like you better not talk about that or you're going to be a schismatic right like surely we have enough you know freedom within the church to at least like have these talks and listen to people especially if they're if they're bringing it up right like we're not I don't I think it's one thing to try to force an issue but it seems like if I mean you could just talk to any a lot of people in our social circles, these are things that they want to talk about when they talk about the church. And so we've got to cultivate an environment where we feel free and without fear to be able to have these discussions, I think. I do try when I I have that gut reaction and then I, I do try to, you know, what what is motivating this? And, and as we said before, this was a response to the abuse crisis. So I do not doubt that the German bishops um, have, you know, 
have been listening to the people in their country and have seen a lot of hurt and a lot of dissatisfaction and and are really are, are trying to be the listening church that Pope Francis has asked us to be. When it seems like the conversation is all going in one direction and that direction pretty much maps on to kind of like the drift of secular culture and what what non-Catholics would say the church needs to do to get its house in order, I I, I get suspicious and I'm like, okay, is, is, is how much of this is really um, driven by by the Holy Spirit and how much is it driven by outside ideologies? And so it just makes me kind of want to put on the brakes. Yeah, I, I think it's fair. It's But what's interesting is it's not entirely clear and it is up for debate how much we're supposed to, you know, how much are we supposed to listen to the outside world? Because it's not none, right? And especially the more you involve lay people in the process, we all live in, we have one foot in the church and one foot in the outside world. So it's totally natural for us to, you know, have some type of give and take with with that and how it's supposed to influence. And also we're supposed to evangelize to the outside world. And so I think this is, these are all like unsettled questions. They always have been uh, in, in Christian life and they always will be. Um, it's just that Francis is really, uh, he's really rocking the boat by letting all this stuff be out in the open and, and giving us space to have these hard conversations. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation. And it's one that, you know, we're, we're starting to have or we're supposed to be having in the United States as, as we embark on our own, our own uh, synodal journey with the, with the worldwide church. So I guess I should probably get more comfortable with messy, <laughs> messy conversations and, and boat rocking. Um, but we'll we'll continue to follow this story. It's it's continuing to evolve, and we'd love to hear your opinion. So if you have a take on the German synodal path, you can tell us about it in our what. And, or if you're a listener in Germany and you're oh, a yeah. part of this, let us know what you think. Because <laughs> we're just you know we're just monitoring it from over here through translated works. So let us know for totally off our rocker. Yep, you can join us on Facebook at facebook.com/groups/jesuitical. And now stick around for our conversation with Emily Burke and Henry Glynn. Joining us from Madison, Wisconsin is Emily Burke. Emily is a recent alumna of Creighton University and a current doctoral student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Joint Sociology and Community and Environmental Sociology program. She works part-time at Catholic Climate Covenant as a social media manager. And also joining us from uh, Omaha, Nebraska is Henry Glynn, who is a junior at Creighton University, majoring in political science and theology, and is currently interning at Catholic Climate Covenant. Emily and Henry were selected to participate in a Zoom meeting with Pope Francis as representatives of Creighton University as part of the uh, synodal process that's undergoing in the Catholic Church right now. And I have to, I have to say that the pro- the event was hosted by my alma mater, so I'm very proud of this, uh, Loyola University Chicago. Uh, Emily and Henry, thanks so much for, for A, participating in that dialogue, and B, coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. I, um, I have been listening to Jesuitical for years. Ah, oh, that's so kind. It, um, <laughs> I, I, we don't get a lot of play with college students. I feel like most of the time they haven't like developed- They don't have uh, commutes where they listen to or, podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and we're just like kind of old, so I don't think we're that you know, like, <laughs> part of the culture yet. Um, I, I do want to get into, you know, I, I imagine that your reaction had to be, well, I, I, I'll let you say, what was your reaction when you were first invited to a Zoom meeting with Pope Francis? Like, is this a joke or? Yeah, yeah. It was mostly like, was is this a joke? It was an email that came to my inbox at the end of January. I was getting ready to move to Washington, D.C. to start working for the Covenant and the the email subject heading was just meeting with Pope Francis question mark. And it was from a <laughs> professor that I'd never had at Creighton before. Emily was copied. I like knew who she was, but I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. It totally felt like a prank. I think the first line in the email was, this is actually not a joke. The subject <laughs> heading is real. <laughs> uh, that's so great. Well, so I, I know, I know I've thought about, you know, if, if I had the Pope's ear, what would I say? Um, and I'm sure other people, have as well. But you guys, you guys actually had the opportunity. Um, so I'm sure there's many things you would want to say, but how did you discern, you know, the one thing you wanted to ask him? Yeah, it's like a less than a once in a lifetime opportunity almost, right, to talk to Pope Francis. Uh, and somebody that like, from a Jesuit school, like we love Pope Francis so much, he's a Jesuit, like the whole thing was just kind of going to be amazing. So in discerning what we were going to say, um, 
Emily and I had to like first meet each other really for the first time and, and sort of get to know each other and talk. We have a couple of connections through Creighton um, involvements in climate change action and advocacy. And I, the focus of the event, we could, we found out after maybe like a week after we were invited and um, we found out that the focus was going to be migration, which is the perfect opportunity to bring in climate change for a number of reasons. But Can you explain we, that connection for us, Emily? The dots that really need to be connected with migration and climate change is that um, not only is there mass migration happening because of climate-related events and climate-related conflicts now, um, but as climate change worsens and you know droughts and warming and sea level rise and all of these things kind of um, start to be more tangible, um, be more in our faces, I think, I, I don't think, I know that there's going to be um, a large increase in numbers of people who are forcibly displaced from their home, who have really no choice due to you know food shortages and things like that. But um, there's actually a study that we cited several times in talking to our group about this and then in presenting to Francis actually um, by researchers at Cornell saying that there could be 1.4 billion climate refugees by 2060 and 2 billion by 2100. So those are pretty stark figures. And when you kind of let that sink in, and, and at least for me, it really gives me a sense of panic because that's, you know, a huge amount of people. Well, and by 2060, you know, I, we're all hoping to be around for that, right? Like right. those are consequences that like we're and our future and our children and grandchildren are going to have to deal with. Right, exactly. Which I think is why it was sort of at the forefront of this conversation with Pope Francis and young people. Now, I'm wondering, you, you've you've written the speeches, you've you've prepared for the, the talk. What was it like seeing Pope Francis's little Zoom square? I mean, because you guys have, you know, being college students, spent most of your life in, on Zoom the past couple of years. Um, what was it like? Just I, I, I cracked up watching the event, just seeing his name, like Pope Francis in the in the little at the bottom of a square. Yeah, we I had the the same reaction. I was we had a we had a practice like a technical run through uh, the day before, a couple of days before the actual event, and there was a technician, you know, running through Francis's technology to make sure that everything was working. But that square was there, so it was just like his desk with the empty chair, and the, the bottom said Pope Francis, and I had a little bit of like a heart palpitation because like it's just kind of a surreal image. But yeah, it was a pretty cool, pretty cool thing to see. So let's get to the event itself when you got to got to make your 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 questions that turned into comments a little your moment to to make your point. Uh Henry, you referenced some of Emily's research about the US bishops lack of involvement when it comes to fighting climate change. And you know, and Pope Francis as you've mentioned in Laudato Si has made this um a priority. So um you were you were talking to their boss. <laughs> Henry, were you just trying to snitch on the U.S. bishops to their boss? Mm, um, no, but more yeah, seriously, more like seriously, why do you want to why do you want to bring this to their attention? Because you know the the research you cite is like Emily, you studied like uh, thousands and thousands of uh, diocesan newspaper columns that were written by bishops, and you found that less than one percent mentioned climate change, which is significant because Ashley said like this has been a key priority of Francis's pontificate. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I read I read Emily's research article for the first time in October um, and was like immediately convicted. I, I, I have all, I've been Catholic for my entire life and I will be Catholic my entire life. Um, but I think that this research study in particular. Careful, really that's important. on that's on a recording now. I will hold that to you. Put my hand on the Bible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I thought this was going to be really important for Francis to know about just because. Um, because he probably hadn't heard the numbers, first of all, but then also because the bishops have a lot going on, right? And that's like a good, and that's an important thing for us to remember and respect is that the bishops have a really big job, especially in the United States with a bunch of different issues, but that the timeliness of something like climate change, plus the fact that it's been a moral issue, a moral faith issue in the church since 1990, means that it's really time to start, it's time to start acting but also because it connects to the deeper issue that a lot of bishops in the United States are really concerned about, which is that young people are leaving the church in droves. Um, I'll just share that like in the weeks leading up to this, when I was being asked by friends and roommates, um, Catholic and non-Catholic and agnostic and had left the church and whatever, and they would ask me what I wanted to talk to the Pope about. And I would tell them um, this and kind of mention this study. And they said like, wow, like I think if the church was doing something about climate change, that could bring a lot of people back, which is just, I thought it was going to be something important for Francis to hear. And the research study itself was just 
really well done, really concise. I felt like it was the best path forward for the comments that we wanted to make. I really like how you um, how you describe that as you know understanding, kind of like putting yourself in the bishop's shoes first. Because through this podcast, we've had a chance to talk to a couple of bishops, and we like we always ask them like a day in the life, and there's they do have so much on their plates. So if you want this to get on their radar, like just kind of accusing them of not caring is probably not the best way to go and not how Pope Francis would kind of like suggest you encounter another or dialogue. So I'm wondering, um, Emily or Henry, like if if you had a chance to talk to a bishop <laughs> instead of Pope Francis, how how would you introduce this issue to them? Yeah. Um, so in doing this study, it, we were really aware of the fact that we were capturing one method of communication, not all. Um, so we were looking at what they were writing in diocesan columns, which is a regular and consistent way that bishops communicate with the people in their diocese, but it's not the only way. Um, and so it was just a way that we could measure. Um, but I think I would, if I would, were to encounter a bishop, um, you know, approach it in the spirit of encounter and the spirit of dialogue and sort of negotiation, um, bringing points to to his attention that you know, not in an not in an antagonistic way or like whatever. That I mean, as a young Catholic, um, as a Catholic generally concerned about this, it feels like there's an action, like sort of approaching it, like what can we do and what can we do together? Because I don't think it's like it shouldn't be an accusation like you're doing nothing and I'm going to sit here and point my finger at you and tell you that you should be doing all of these things. Like it's not, that's not the goal. Um, the goal is for more of like a working together type of relationship and a shared priority of this issue. Um, so I think that would be the first step. We hope that we can talk to bishops that the Pope, that the yeah. talking to the Pope was kind of like the once in a lifetime. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. We should definitely talk to him about this, but the goal the entire time is to, really bring this to our bishops and our priests and our Catholic communities and our schools, the church. And I mentioned this in my comments, but the church has such tremendous capacity to act and to use its moral voice in the world through really just like kind of through some ways that I hadn't even really considered until we started preparing for this event, but like thinking about the Catholic church touches 100,000 buildings in the United States. And if those were all zero emissions, like what kind of a message would that send? Or if we're, maybe we talk about Catholic social teaching more in priestly formation. And then like, how does that transition down to the people? And how do we, how does that change youth, young adult, like religious education? And then how are we using our money and our infrastructure and our schools? And like, it just changes the whole game. So we, we mentioned, I'm sure we'll get into this, but the nonviolent direct action piece of our proposal is like drawn directly from Martin Luther King's like non-direct, non-violent direct action format, which is um, like gather your information. So like do a study and then um, enter into negotiation, which maybe doesn't work quite as well in the Catholic church because it's not a democracy and it's not the government. So then self-purification is that third step, pray, reflect about it, figure out what you want to do. And the fourth step then is non-violent direct action. But in this case, really in the spirit of love and, and true encounter that Pope Francis calls us to, and that our church calls us to, and that the Holy Spirit calls us to. It's really about getting to an honest negotiating step where we're working together with our leaders who have this um, tremendous responsibility to care for people. Yeah, I don't know if you both feel this way. Um, and this is not to make like make an excuse for the church, because I, I think this is an area where we should and could lead. But, but it's also frustrating because it oftentimes seems like the rest of the world also is sort of plagued by an action on this issue. Um, and so that's something I think about all the time. It's like, oh, the church is failing in this, but it's also like, okay, compared to what? <laughs> like who's really doing this well? And sadly, it's like not a lot of people. And yet we have, as, as you mentioned, like this vast like potential to really like kick everybody into gear. And and it's just kind of a shame that we're we're not using it. Uh, Emily, could you expand a little bit more on this thing that Henry was just touching on? Because uh, I know you you this was a major focus in uh, your comments to the Pope. This idea of uh, nonviolent direct action, like where'd that come from? Because you referenced like the Pope's thoughts on it too. Yeah, yeah. So in sort of talking with the synodal group that we were representing in our our comments to Francis, and and who made up that group? I mean, we should say because this was like a dialogue. Um, kind of right. across the Americas, right? 
Yeah, so we um, were in a group of about 20 students um, from the central United States and Canada. So these were just students sort of selected in the same way we were because of our connection with Creighton. Um, so there was Catholic schools, Jesuit schools. I think there was a couple of people just from, you know, public schools, but all of them had a sort of connection to uh, Catholicism, the issue of migration, things like that. So so even though you two were the ones like on the Zoom call with the Pope, you were sort of bringing the perspectives and voices of a lot of right. people. I just I right. just point that out because I think it's like a really good representation of what this synod is supposed to be like. And, and so I commend both of you for it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a cool experience. We, we met with the students in our group um, several times. It was kind of a quick turnaround, this event. So it was a sort of expedited synodal process, I think, where we were meeting like twice a week for, you know, a month. Um, but we had a lot of just, you know, blunt conversations about our priorities, interests, anxieties, experiences with the issue of migration and its root causes. And so this is what emerged from these conversations. So this isn't just Henry and I talking off off of, you know, what we, what we're thinking, we were representing uh, a lot of the discussions that we had with the students in our group. Um, And one of the main things that continuously came up with the with this group was this shared frustration where kind of like you were talking about this inaction just seems to be everywhere. And it seems to sort of plague the church, plague, you know, civil society and like our political leaders. And um, as young people feeling like this is an issue that really touches us, but like feeling sort of stuck, like there's not much that we can do. So we saw as the natural next step or new strategy, because clearly, you know, what we're doing right now isn't working. Um, we saw preparing to turn to nonviolent direct action as that next step and new strategy to sort of try. Um, that's not to say that we don't think that we should continue to negotiate and continue to encounter, you know, bishops and priests and our political leaders and have, you know, face-to-face conversations and interactions and things like that. Um, but sort of preparing for when that inevitably doesn't prove fruitful um, as it hasn't in you know the last couple of decades, um, recognizing that this is such a timely issue and a timely situation that we need to sort of pivot and prepare for what to do next. Mm. And so, when you say um, nonviolent direct action, is that the same thing as civil disobedience? Is th- is that what you have in mind as the as the next step? Yeah, yeah. So nonviolent direct action, active nonviolence, is what Pope Francis uses. Um, civil disobedience, sort of using the the tactics and the strategies and the, you know, evidence-based, historically-based ways of addressing issues when conversations prove unfruitful. All right. So, so you guys bring all, you have these conversations, you synthesize it and you, you bring it to Pope Francis. Um, Can you, uh, Henry, maybe first, can you uh, tell us what your biggest takeaways were from, from the Pope's response uh, to your questions and to your uh, statements? Sure. I don't think I stopped smiling for like three hours after he after he responded to us. I was still like in shock hours later. Um, I was really heartened by um, just his entire persona and like that it wasn't some recorded video or a document that I was reading that he wrote. Like it was like him kind of taking notes and responding. This felt really special to like the 16 of us who got <laughs> him taking notes th- throughout the call. I thought was just like, he was, he was engaged. He was like really listening and like writing oh stuff gosh. down about what you guys said. I, it was really cool to see. It was unreal to see. It, yeah. It was, it was, it was pretty surreal to experience that, but I was kind of overjoyed um, with the Pope's just affirmation of, of our like longing for, sincerity and like he used he kind of so my response included like that you know that our generation values authenticity and deplores hypocrisy and he kind of took that hypocrisy piece and sort of ran with it in his response and said like never fall into hypocrisy never ever ever and i think that was kind of like a it was a classic both and ask from him for us to like be brave about what we do challenge our church challenge ourselves to be better people together but also recognize that like there is an element, this, this all needs to, to run through a lens of love and humility, which is kind of what we were trying to do the entire time. Um, and sort of how we, how we took the narrative from our group and sort of funneled it down into, okay, 
we're not coming as people who hate the Catholic Church and think it's failing at climate change. We're coming as people who really do like love and appreciate and feel the power of this institution. And because of that, like, and I think this is probably true for all of us, that we hold those we love to a much higher standard, right? That's our highest expectations are for those people. So I was, I was really pleased with the Pope's response as far as affirming that act of nonviolence, um, the construction of nonviolent activities while always remaining just kind of like in a spirit of faith and goodwill for the good of everyone. Emily, how about you? What did you take away from the Pope's remarks? Yeah, um, pretty similar to Henry's. Um, I, first of all, was just, again, beside myself that I was speaking and he was taking notes. That was just an unreal image. Um, But he did affirm sort of our um, looking to nonviolence as a way of proceeding. I mean, he didn't say, like, you know, go hold signs outside of your bishop's office, but he didn't say like you shouldn't be you know thinking about these things so i think i think he saw where we were coming from um the fact that he affirmed what henry said about hypocrisy he sort of warned us about not falling into hypocrisy and to staying sincere um but in a sense he also sort of acknowledged where i think we were coming from in fears that our church leaders or political leaders are falling into hypocrisy hypocrisy i don't think that that um like went over his head i think he he's heard us and he i mean not overtly agreed but um saw where we were coming from you've had such a very unique experience of literally feeling being heard by the pope and feeling like you've been affirmed by the pope i think a lot of people would look at that or young people especially, and be like, you know, who's listening to me? Like, why, why, why don't I have someone I can talk to and feel heard? And that's kind of what the synodal process that we've talked about, or we've mentioned a couple times, is all about. So, so what would you say to those so those friends who look at your experience and say, okay, like that's a once in a lifetime kind of thing? Like, I'm never going to be heard by, like that by the church. So I've been thinking about this a lot um, because chances are this never, like, nothing like this ever happens again in my lifetime, like, and this is just such a rare experience. I think what I, what I take the spirit that I take into my work every day at Catholic climate covenant in kind of hearing a lot of these disheartening, like stories about, I don't think like, I don't feel the church is listening to me. I don't like what's going on. Is this like, is this, is this the faith that we practice? The one that we read in these Catholic social teaching documents, is that transition over? Do I, do I hear about that ever? Like what's going on? What are we doing? And I think that that same can be said for a lot of my friends at Creighton and in other places. Um, but I think that this is the beginning and not the end. That's sort of how we framed the entire synodal conversation was that this process to open the church up is like just exactly that. It's a process to open the church up and like how exciting and, and what a blessing that that's coming at the same time that we really need to get our act together on, on climate change and especially um and we have the opportunity to do so in the church and like what a special opportunity that is as well. So I think that what I'll take back to my friends and what I've been telling them and my family and other people and different people who want to talk about this after the encounter of kind of with those sentiments of like, well, I'm never going to get to talk to the public. So what good does this do in general? Wasn't this just like a, just a big show to show that the church listens to young people or something is that the church is going to listen if we start talking together. And that's part of what we, that's why we wanted to bring this is that it's such an important thing but it's not just like an important thing that young people care about that, that older like people or the institutional church can just say like, Oh, well, like, that's great that you care about that. We'll get around to it. Like, no way we've been teaching on this for 30 years. Like we have, a, I mean, the largest encyclical ever written is one on climate change and ecology. So like the fact that this is a faith issue is established in our church, I think really gives us the grounds to say that like, yeah, we're Catholic and we care a lot about this and we need to do something about it now together. Emily, how about you? How's the that experience of being listened to shape the way that like I don't know the general perspective of young people not feeling heard by the church? There could be a, a scenario in which young people see this as you know a show that's put on, like you know we were the trophy, whatever. However many of us got to be on the Zoom call, and now like done deal, can you know wipe my hands of this, and like now we listen to young people. 
Um, but I don't think that's true. Um, and I think, again, Francis taking notes on what we were saying and sort of uh, taking the time to affirm every group of students who talked um, on their specific context and their specific points. Um, it wasn't just like a like an image thing. It was uh, Pope Francis especially genuinely wanting to show up and to listen and to to give young Catholics a platform that I think that a lot of us have been frustrated not not to have or to to find hard to come by. Um, so I think, like Henry said, this is a beginning and not an end, and that's exciting in the sense that now. I mean, I feel like I can, you know, I mean, I can say I talk to the Pope and like, what weight does that carry in other Catholic circles? Like, um, I know my, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I also have connections here in Madison, Wisconsin. And so like having people reach out to me and saying, we want you to come talk to us about what you told him. Um, it's sort of creating this conversation that maybe didn't exist before or maybe people just didn't know how to start and so this is this is a starting point and um how cool that we got to like henry said sort of bring climate up in this conversation and at such a, a timely moment um i think i think a lot of things are sort of aligning in a really interesting and i don't want to say convenient but like well working way um that maybe the action that we're seeing, you know, so much potential for can maybe start to, to, to mobilize, to activate. Yeah. Well, hearing both your guys' hope is really inspiring for me. Uh, it's, it's not something you hear a lot of in the climate debate and, and the way you, you approach it as, you know, you love the church and because you love the church, you're willing to challenge it is, is something I hope uh, more, more young people would be willing to embrace um, so thank you. Thank you for sharing this experience with us. Uh, we do have one final question for you both that we ask all of our guests, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? And Henry, you can go first. Oh, my gosh. I have like so I've listened to this podcast forever. So I've been thinking about this answer for such a long time. It's an unfair advantage. <laughs> well, well, Emily, that's on you. Emily. That's on you. Yes. I, <laughs> you would think it would be an unfair advantage. Um, okay. This is maybe out of left field, but my dad is an English teacher in the little town where I grew up in, in Northeast Kansas. Um, and a big part of us growing up was that we would sit around the kitchen table or the living room after dinner on summer nights and just kind of read out loud to each other. It was like a big part of my younger sister and I learning how to read. It was like really a blessing. It was wonderful. My dad can read with all these different voices. So I think fictional character that I would canonize, not Catholic, but so cool, Atticus Finch. I have to, right? From, from To Kill a Mockingbird. Like just the quality of character that I like recognized both in my dad and then the other men in my life. Um, and then since then in college and like even the professors that Emily and I worked with to get ready for this, like recognizing that innate quality of just a genuine person who cares a lot is like exactly who I want to be. So Atticus Finch for today. Saint Atticus. Saint of To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Emily? Yeah. Um, sort of actually fitting with this conversation and with, um, the remarks that we we gave to Francis, I'd say Martin Luther King. Um, I think he was sort of an image of um, a love that does justice and continues to be um, even now. So, I mean, he was a lot of the the inspiration for where we think that we could, as young people, take the issue of climate change and move the church and activate that potential. Um, and I think that's the case for a lot of issues, actually. I think he just, he really got it and he really got how a, a Christian love necessitates um, justice, even, even if that means having really hard conversations and, you know, being a prophet. Um, and I think that would be my decision. All right. Well, Emily, Henry, first of all, I just want to say really good job. Uh, you know, I thought you represented like, Young, young people in the United States really well. And I, and I was uh, very 
just I, grateful that you were chosen to kind of be the ones ha- to participate in that dialogue. Um, so A, good job. And B, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we really appreciate it. This It's such a fun thing to hear about and hear you guys talk about. Um, you can see the like the joy in both of your voices and faces. So um, I, I hope that you are able to continue spreading spreading the the hope and the joy that you encountered on your Zoom call with Pope Francis. Yes. Thank you both. Anything Anything you want to plug before we let you go? Well, other than that, everyone on this call who's looking for a place to go to college, go to Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> uh, we are both affiliated with uh, an organization in Washington, D.C. called Catholic Climate Covenant um, that has a very inspiring mission for um, helping people connect those dots we've been talking about during this during this encounter from climate change to your faith, to your church, to the way you live. Um, and that's just a really important connection for people to make as the church moves into this modern era. And really, uh, especially in this synodal process of the next two years, the covenant has these programs called creation care teams, which are really kind of like set up like Christian based communities in parishes to start talking about this and start this conversation about climate change and care for creation and care for each other. They do a bunch of stuff. So check them out. CatholicClimateCovenant.org. It's like the longest website you'll ever type into your browser, but it's worth it, I promise. So, And I would be a bad social media manager if I didn't say follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. <laughs> awesome. We'll, we'll link to all of that in our show notes. Cool. And man, I uh, y- y- normally people got to pay for the kind of advertising that Catholic <laughs> Climate just got. So well done. <laughs> them. Uh, Emily, Henry, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is awesome. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? Want to uh, thank uh, our Patreon supporters. Again, uh, we can't do this without you. And we've got a new patron this week, Caroline. Thank you so much. And wanted to highlight uh, what's going on over there in that feed. Uh, newest content, we had some special Easter reflections from uh, Ashley and I uh, that we we had done, we'd prepared for uh, this Catholic secondary school in Australia, Lumen Christi College, who had asked us to be part of a sort of staff pilgrimage day. It was called a pilgrimage through a pandemic. And so Ashley and I were kind of looking at, you know, what is the message of Easter before, during, and after the pandemic. And so if you want to hear those reflections from us, they're still relevant and it is still Easter. Uh, you can join all of our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Media. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And it, it very much relates to what you just said. It is still Easter, but yes. sometimes it can be hard hard to remember that. I don't know about you. Like when I get to the end of Lent, you've put in so much thought into what you're going to give up. And then you're thinking about how you failed to give, you know, stick to that promise. And you try to do it again. And then you get to Easter and you're like, ah, I'm done. <laughs> I'm free of the Catholic guilt that I that's been plaguing me this entire season for doing or not doing the thing. Yeah. And I feel like I you know, I love Easter. It's it's uh you know, it's the kind of the summit of our faith, <laughs> the resurrection, but I often forget that the Easter season uh continues for what is it 50 days? 50 days, 50 days till Pentecost. Yep. Um and I don't even I've never given much thought to what it would look like to to treat that season with the same intentionality that I treat Lent. Yeah, I get to Easter Monday um, in particular, and I'm just like, both because like practically a lot of people, and I think a lot of people relate to this because we're all, a lot of us are traveling, maybe going back to see family. the triduum is just like emotionally intense, yeah. right? You're It's a lot of highs, a lot of lows, and you kind of are just a little exhausted. Um, mm-hmm. And so I've always like, heard you know don't forget easter's the season but i also i I need a i need to take a breath you know uh, after all of after we've lived all these mysteries uh and so but then the the question is like all right after i catch my breath what what next yeah no so we were talking to father eric sundrup about this and he pointed out there there are actually things you can do at mass to to remind people that it's still easter that i had no idea existed so one is uh doing the the sprinkling right where you were I think you renew your baptismal vows and it takes the place of the penitential rite at Mass, which I, I just had no idea that was an option. 
but yeah oh it's just like <laughs> and it's just like a different thing to kind of mark a different season but there's also i'm wondering what are some things that we can do in our individual spiritual lives uh this season well one thing i think about is I, you know that the church is kind of genius in the way that it you know maps its liturgical year onto the the physical year and so you know i don't think it's you know pagan to realize that the resurrection is happening in the natural world around us and i think i've generally been like ah like i can't being in nature is not my a spiritual practice but maybe just letting myself like let let spring and in this Easter hemisphere. joy. Like, in this hemisphere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but you're right. No, I think that's a place you could look. No, just, yeah, yeah, just like looking for signs of resurrection in in my own life and, and just naming them. Like, you know, I just... I just got a new nephew. That's a wonderful birth, mm. <laughs> and 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 letting myself appreciate that as as part of my you know Easter celebration instead of you know thinking that you can only mark a a, a season with acts of penance. It's true. Um, I uh, it's, yeah, when the sun is just out more and the days are longer, it gets warmer. You feel better. So sorry to all our listeners in Australia because yeah. this is this got to be a weird <laughs> weird time to sort of navigate that because it's getting colder. I also really like the idea of just, Eric mentioned that one of the things that he does is he rereads the uh, Emmaus story, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, I, th- I think he said every day during Easter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of like a you know, reminder of like, this is like what the church felt like in the, in after the resurrection, right? Everybody was not like, woohoo, now it's all done and we figured it all out, right? Yeah. It, it was confusing and Kinda weird. Stunned. <laughs> no one ever risen from the dead. And so there's a lot of like figuring out what has to happen that needs to go on. And so leaning it, into yeah. like, you've got a similar shared experience with the, with the apostles when, when the, the first Easter happened. Mm-hmm. And in the gospels that, that very much comes across, like they they all have kind of weird, confused descriptions of Jesus and and maybe taking that lesson to be like, all right, like where are the places right now that I do not recognize God working? Because it's it's not going to be where you expect it. No, usually. and you, the lesson from the Emmaus story is that you only recognize it in the eating and the drinking. And so <laughs> I will be doing lots of that this season. <laughs> All right, I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundruff. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>